Welcome to episode number four of the Mostly Erlang podcast. This is the podcast for the week of 17th of May, roughly, and we have Joe Armstrong. Hello. And uh, as always, Fred Hebert is here. Hi. Uh, Simon St. Lawrence. Hello. And I'm Zach Kesson. And just before we start, a couple announcements. Uh, Lambda Jam. The conference will be happening in Chicago. It looks really amazing. And if you use discount code CRASH, they will give you 10% off. Also, Erlang User Conference will be happening in Stockholm. And we don't have a discount code for that, but I will be speaking there. Joe will be speaking there. Uh, his talks are a lot more prominent than mine, as it should be. Uh, and there's other things. And if people have things they'd like us to announce on the show, uh, please let me know. Yeah, and I'm... Giving the keynote at Lambda Jam. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you were at Lambda Jam too. Yeah. I probably saw it on their website and, you know, spaced on it. Yeah, I haven't written it yet. I've written the, ti- I've written a flashy title, but I haven't written the talk yet. <laughs> Just start with a title and then react when people complain. And this is <laughs> So, alright, so we, we sort of, today's topic is sort of vague. So, Joe, you were telling us about concurrency. Issues of concurrency. So why don't we start there? Well, I, I, well, I was saying. Um, what was I saying? Uh, JavaScript. Oh yes, yes. I, well, I've been fighting concurrency problems all day in JavaScript. I. I it, it just sort of this this event stuff is absolutely awful. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, I I actually found something that was impossible to do in, in JavaScript. Well, it. It's possible. This is in the browser. Have you have you tried to load web fonts, anybody? Uh, no. I think I did. There's, there's something called font face, and and if yep. you in in a canvas now fonts fonts work fine outside a canvas, but if you load a font into a canvas, um, you don't know when the font's been loaded, right? And if you if you just write an application that starts and starts writing stuff in a canvas, and you want to have some, I wanted a handwritten font in the canvas. Uh, when the page loads, it says, oh, you need this resource, which is a font, and it's loaded asynchronously. JavaScript from the system loads it asynchronously. But if when it starts drawing on the canvas, the font isn't available, it backs off and uses the next best font it can find. But the problem is there's no callback to tell you when the font's been loaded, right? No, yeah. so it's actually impossible. So all you have to do is you write the text you write the text onto the canvas, you set a timeout, and then you measure what's been written on the canvas, and you look for an abrupt change in that. <laughs> and then when that happens, you know the font's been loaded, then you clear the entire canvas. And, and this is the kind of problem that always existed, and I remember working with ActionScript 2 back when Flash was still more of a thing, and resource loading for the longest time had that kind of problem where if you were trying to load... Uh, you just set into the, the scene, you had to either pull it by hand or wait until Macromedia or Adobe later on decided to add the callback to let you know it's gone. And if you have something else that depends on it that's also in the callback, then you need to use global variables as some kind of flag mm. that, yes, you can go on or you can't, and just do all the scheduling yourself and waiting and polling for variables. So, so, it's pretty so, annoying. I mean, in this... JavaScript stuff, when you, you, you're in the, you want to read something, you know, read a file or something, or, you know, fetch a resource, and really your program needs to stop. I mean, the, lo- the logic of your program, you're thinking, oh, I read an image, and once I've read the image, I'll find the 
width and the height of it. Once I've done that, I'll do this. So, so in any programming language in the world, you, any sequential language, you'd say read image, and then you would say width equals width of image. But you can't do that in JavaScript. <laughs> you have to say dispatch a call to read the image and set up a callback function that when the image has been read, <laughs> go and do something. You could use yeah. a problem. somewhere else. You it's could like use a li- everywhere. Well, use a library like Q, which gives you promises, which makes it a little more elegant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean it... futures, promises, data flow, all these kind of things are ways to solve that. But hacks. Things like Node.js basically just give you the most basic construct there is. I yeah, mean, it really is kind of the 21st century version of GoTo. Call back night, call back hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think some of it is, you know, JavaScript is set up to set up with a an event focus from the beginning, but some of it is also just these very strange interactions with the browser and, you know, how the browser vendors have decided to handle these things. There was a group that did uh, a responsive images library uh, picture and picture fill, and it works and it's great, but there are all kinds of multimedia is like the, the corner case for all of these things. But I, I mean, so. I've, I've read blogs and things, and they say, like, uh, in, in Node.js, mm-hmm. I say, everything executes in the main thread, which is an advantage, they say, because of efficiency. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. more efficient, but it's impossible right. to program. Yeah, yeah, you just have to spawn n instances of JS, one per core, and then you've got your massive parallelism. <laughs> that was the whole point or something like that. And well, this is the I mean, it can work that way. And- <laughs> I mean, until R15B03, I think, with uh, R13B in Erlang, that's what you had, basically. The schedulers were not very good at work stealing, and you had to spawn many virtual machines to be able to get some decent performances out of SMP. Otherwise, it was just abysmal. Then in R13, they fixed that, and now people in Erlang can be very, very... uh, I'd say boastful about it. And yes, it's so easy and so simple, but it took years to get it right. It's, it's very tricky, actually. And if yeah. you think, if you, if you don't have that support, support in your runtime or in your language, every single programmer who writes an application has got to do that for themselves, which is Absolutely. horrendous. Well, I mean, awful. even if you can only support one core, I mean, the Erlang on Zen project, from what I understand, only supports one core, and they just assume you're going to use a hypervisor mm. to spread it around. You know, but even within that, having a decent concurrency model. Oh yes, yes. Is, is absolutely. Still, you know, I've I, I've been in Java callback hell when you sort of have to assume everything happens <laughs> synchronously, <laughs> and you know, except for that one corner case that the alert function doesn't, which nails you eighteen ways mm. to Sunday. And I mean, JavaScript gets out of it a little bit because it's a, at least a fairly sugary language that you can do monadic promises and stuff, but. Mm. It's so it's not as bad as it could be in some other languages. You know, if you were using PHP, for example, syntax, where I wouldn't want to even think about it. But you know, the base assumption for Node for Node.js is that if you look at say um, a website running PHP, that context switches and processes are very expensive. So we'll do away with them and have everything run in one process. The Erlang solution is simply make them super cheap. Mm. There's a thing like Node.js, if you want to replicate a model in Erlang, just program everything into a single gen event. <laughs> you've, got, you, you, you've got the same concurrency model as Node.js. Right. Now, the thing that, that, that there that is that Node.js, Node.js is still pretty interesting when compared to other web technology. Because I was looking at things like 
I think frameworks in Python and Ruby particularly use processes or forks at the server level. And I don't know why, but when you have a framework like Ruby on Rails and you need to fork it to be able to have multiple concurrent requests, you end up having three or four concurrent requests and you need almost a gigabyte of memory for that. This is terrible. And Node.js is better than that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it just had this small when you need that the, much the, memory just to serve the, three or four answers. The thing is, I, I don't think that even getting into sort of interesting problems, because when start, when things start getting difficult, I mean, imagine they're difficult in Erlang because the concurrency is difficult. What are they going to be like in Node.js? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I actually, I, I, I've been doing a little experiment. Um, I've, I've got a blog on, on my GitHub page there, and I thought I would... I thought I would put two different types of articles there. I mean, this is deliberate and, and see what the response is. OK, so so one theme I'm pursuing is is the, the explain it to a five year old theme. OK. And, and the other is the technically complicated theme. So I, I was waiting to, to have a cup of coffee in the coffee room. And we've got we've got two coffee machines, physical coffee machines and two queues of people had formed you know, because everybody wanted coffee. So there were two groups of people. So I just drew a quick diagram there and, and said, well, that's parallelism. So you've got two queues of people and two coffee machines. So parallelism with two queues of people and two coffee machines. And in the other coffee machine, we've got one coffee machine. Sorry, in the other coffee room, we've got one coffee machine. So they're so saying, well, concurrency is two queues of people waiting for one coffee machine. Now I drew a picture of this. That blog entry got, got something like 25,000 people read it and and it got 15 or 20, uh, no, maybe 10 responses. And and quite a lot of criticism, actually, from people who are sort of, you know, they know what concurrency and parallelism is. But and then I compare it with some other articles I've written, which are technically sort of deeper. And there you only get a few hundred people read it. OK, so so I think the message is we have to sort of try and explain what we're doing in a way that people could understand because if if you are kind of making the assumption that everybody understands what concurrency is and, and uh, we're, we're too familiar with it but people don't really understand what concurrency is and they don't understand what parallelism is the next the next thing I'm, I'm i'm doing a series of pictures i want to explain what eventual consistency is and and but the byzantine generals and all this kind of stuff to to a five-year-old you see because it's actually quite easy um but I, I don't have a five-year-old, but I got a four-year-old and a six-year-old, so maybe I'll oh, try. Oh, we can try. Well, on the average, is five, so we can try it out on yeah. them. <laughs> of course, it's probably easy to do Byzantine generals with a, with a five-year-old because you can get a sandcastle or something and give them little plastic swords, and they can run up and down. <laughs> well, for, for eventual consistency, the case I used in Learn New Summerlang was to basically use survivors in a zombie apocalypse not being <laughs> able to communicate together to set a rendezvous point, and so yeah. you had to decide whether you were able to change a rendezvous point or you needed to have the equivalent of a quorum to do it and that was the eventual consistency about when people yeah. can communicate back again and whatnot and the idea is between latency or a net split or failure impossible to have when you are talking with the other survivors with a walkie-talkie and you don't hear an answer back so you don't know if the person is dead their bet their battery is dead if they're just not in a place where the signal can reach them mm. And then suddenly I realized that because I was trying to explain it to myself in a really simple way. And then I suddenly realized that with replicated data, uh, there can only be one place in the system that knows that everything is consistent. It's just impossible. The Byzantine general says that you can't have two places. And, and I didn't even realize it was one place. And suddenly I realized there are some some 
some algorithms which can ensure that one place is consistent. And, and, yeah. and it's really easy to prove. And I've never seen a theorem that says that. I think that I think you have something similar with the leader election algorithms and you have the Paxos algorithm for that, yeah. which aim to have a way to decide who's the central authority in the system at that point. Well, that's much more difficult. I mean, yeah, and, I mean, and, I mean a leadership election algorithms in Erlang make my head hurt. And and uh, <laughs> you know, we, to tell a funny story. Once upon a time, we, we had some leadership election algorithms in, in Erlang and and. They did actually make your head hurt when you look at them. They're pretty raw if that happens and if this happens. And, and so we, we got some uh, theoreticians involved and, and they said, well, we'll prove these algorithms to be correct. So they, <laughs> they went off and proved the algorithms to be correct and said, well, you need to make these changes and so on. And then we said, yeah, well, so we had the implementation and we had the proof of correctness. And they showed this at some the ACM conference on on Erlang or something like that. And, and these have been in practice for some time. Then somebody sent in a bug report, which, which showed that the, the thing elected two leaders in and he could reproduce it. <laughs> and then they looked at this bug and, and then went back at the code and said, but this code has been proved to be correct. And that's the people that done the theorem proof. Said, well, we had to make certain assumptions about the proof. Yeah, no failure in that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that during this thing, that this failure mode couldn't happen. <laughs> so we hadn't actually proved that case. When we disregard reality, we're able to prove that. <laughs> with, the, with the following simplifying assumptions. So when, you, when I disregard my bank account, I can fly in a private jet. <laughs> it sounds like the theorists needed a good dose of let it crash. Yeah, well, I, I remember I, there was a professor of... of Something or other, some branch of computer science where I was working. I was kind of interested in leadership election, and I, I went and asked him. I said, "Have you, have you got any good algorithms for, for leadership election?" And he said, uh, "Yes, seventeen actually." <laughs> said, well, what are your assumptions? You know, the, does it does the node that dies stay dead forever, or or <laughs> is there some upper time bound? And, and depending on how you answer all these questions, you, you, it leads to all these different families of algorithms, and it's that sort of thing. You absolutely have to put it into libraries and, 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 you know, do your absolute best to make sure the libraries are correct and, and then let the user, then the users can use them because there isn't a chance in hell they could write this stuff themselves. So it's, I mean, it's really, really tricky stuff. But it's very deep. You know, it's very fundamentally very deep. So is there anything in Erlang, people are trying to get you to put into Erlang, you just look at it and go, wow, that's a really bad idea. Or... I guess um, the question is, is there, is, what's, what's your favorite one? The favorite really bad idea, which <laughs> I shouldn't really say. Does anybody listen to this podcast? Uh, yeah, we do. Phew. Oh, well, no, the, 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 the first really bad idea that we put in was, was process priorities. I don't know if you've, it, it's very deliberate. I don't think it's documented anywhere and it's not in my book and, and it's not in my book for a reason. I hope nobody ever finds out. It's possibly in the, it's possibly in the process flags documentation in Erlang. Yeah. I think yeah, I, I found it that I way. I think it's hidden very, very deeply so that you can't yeah. find it. You have to look for it. Yeah. Well, it's not supposed to be well documented. That's, that's mm -hmm. deliberate. And when this, this happened years and years ago, and uh, there, was some, the, there were some guys doing a, a, an application in Erlang, and they said they wanted different priorities on the processes. Now, I had a very, very bad experience with priorities because I – Years before I worked for Ericsson, I, I worked for the Swedish Space Corporation, and I built an operating system for 
satellite control system, a round-robin operating system, lots of processes in it. And the first version I, I did, everything had the same priority, and it worked fine. And then I got the bright idea of putting priorities onto the processes, because the operating system let you do this. And so I thought, well, this is important, so it's got a high priority, and this isn't important, uh, so it's got a low priority. And I made all those changes, and it totally buggered the system up. It behaved awfully. So, so I took all the priorities out uh, and, and put them back to, to the same priority, and then it worked fine again. So when they asked me to do this in Erlang, I said, no, silly idea. And said, well, I don't understand what it means anyway, semantically. And, uh, uh, and they said, yeah, you've got to put it in. No, no I, I just point back refused. And, and then they applied what you might call political pressure <laughs> through my boss. And we really need this, really. You know, couldn't you do this? And, and finally, I, I, I was sort of forced into a position where, where I said, well, OK, I'll put them in. So I waited a few weeks and I put in an Erlang call that said process priority, uh, PID, some integer. And this was the priority. And that call didn't do anything at all. It was commented <laughs> out. I mean, there was absolutely nothing in the underlying system that did anything. It was just a no-op. <laughs> and I shipped the system. And then I, and then I said, how would you like it with the priorities? And they said, oh, it's going much better. <laughs> I said. <laughs> and then this was in the system for about three or four months. Then they started reading the code and found it was no-op. <laughs> <laughs> then they got really pissed, <laughs> and then they and then they and then they forced me to put priorities in. Really, so I put priorities in then, but I only put in two levels, which I called high and low. <laughs> I made sure that the scheduler scheduled them almost equally. <laughs> no, but I mean, and and I'm glad we don't have them. If you're mad, what the heck does that mean on a multi-core? What does it mean in a distributed system? You know, where you've got machines of different performance. You know, you connect a really powerful machine, clean. You know, you've got a big fat machine with a fast clock and talking to a slow machine and it's all in a distributed air. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. The dangerous side I've seen about it is that people love to have micro benchmarks and that kind of thing. And I remember dealing with a web server that had some busy loop it had go into high priority so that in benchmarks it could sort faster. It ended up that if you had real work to do on the node that used that web server, which is not a hello world test, it completely wrecked all the performance of the node because it was stealing the scheduling time of all the busy processes that you actually want to make to, to do work. And it was a bad solution to a nasty bottleneck in the software mm. that got eliminated in benchmarks. But when you put it in the real world, it just ended up making the system completely helpful compared to just letting the scheduler do its thing. Yeah. And this is kind of dangerous. And since since that time, I, the only reason I raised the the importance of a of a process so it gets more scheduling time is when I want to simulate a node being overloaded in the test. Mm. So you don't have to generate the load; you just have two or three processes that do busy looping with high priority, and the rest acts as if there was no process. But I, I, I just knew that people would. You know, up the priority of a process to get it to run in before another process instead of sending messaging, and, and, and uh, they did. You know, and it's horrible. So, so don't do it. If you're listening to this blog, do not use priorities if you accidentally find them. <laughs> yeah, I, I I keep finding a pattern where humans want to overspecify everything they can, and you know they 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 have a hard time trusting the flexibility of the underlying programming system. And, 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 and a lot the, of other thing, the other thing is, is that they well, I wish that, uh, again, this is what you shouldn't do, guys. They measure 
they they write the same code different ways, and and then they write their code in the way that is most efficient. Well, that's bad in a sense. I think they should make efficiency by choosing different algorithms. They shouldn't they shouldn't make things efficient by writing one algorithm in lots of different ways and choosing the best because the next if, if they write it one way and discover that it's not very efficient that way, they they should tell us. <laughs> You know, because it's probably a bug in the compiler or something, so we can fix it. You know, the, the, the sort of mails I like are, there was one, do you remember, there was on the mailing, mailing list, there was some guy said, oh, I wrote the code this way, and I, ex- oh, yes, he was finding, he was finding line breaks in very large files. Did you see that? It was a few months ago. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah. And, and he said, he said, the, the results surprised me. I expected it to take this long, and it took a heck of a lot longer. And, then I think I wrote a little benchmark to see it. I couldn't see that effect. And and I mailed back and mine didn't behave like his. And, th- and then he said, oh, and there's another funny thing. The, the distribution of my file isn't uniform. I've got some extremely long lines in it. And, and, and then the rest are all about the same. But some of the lines are like kilobytes long. And, and, it, and it surprises me. And from then it took, I, I don't know, Patrick or somebody found a bug in the system in about five minutes. But if he hadn't made that observation, this this thing surprises me. And maybe given this clue that uh, it happened under these circumstances, that that could have been in the system for years. Uh, but people people silently keep, you know, they find a bug, or they find a performance thing, and and they think, oh, it should have gone faster. And then they rewrite, and then they just write it a different way, and they don't tell us about the fact they were surprised. So we can't debug it. But it might be nice to rewrite it a different way, just as a it works well in code base A, not well in code base B. Right. you something to debug from, you know, okay. But I don't know about you, but I, I think, I mean, one thing I like about Erlang is I, I, I think it's got a pretty predictable performance model. And, and Nicholas Viet said this about programming language. When you write code, you should more or less be able to guess if that code's going to be slow or fast because, because what's going on is, is pretty straightforward. And you don't get that in Haskell or, or Prolog or something like that. You know, you, you, space leaks and things. You, you haven't a clue how long it's going to take or lazy evaluation sort of turns off all that intuition, if you like. I, I will admit that I've had tried to learn Haskell a few times and it causes my head to try to explode. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I have a, I actually have something nice to say about JavaScript on this. As, as much as I love that Erlang has a single runtime, the fact that JavaScript has multiple means that these kinds of conversations happen because people are surprised by one implementation mm. over mm. another. So that's kind of baked into the culture there. I wonder if there's a way to bake it into Erlang culture without suddenly having six different runtimes. Well, there are several Erlang runtimes. It's just 99% of us are using so the you know the, the normal one and there's also but there's also the Erlang on Zen runtime and the uh, Erlang on yes. the JVM runtime and there are a few others out there. So they do exist. They do, but they run in such different worlds that I don't think people are as surprised by performance differences. This is true. No, but I think we'd see more runtimes and more more implementations if, if the language was more popular and was more widely adopted. But I mean, but it's funny because I mean, I've seen some pressure. A lot of people have been saying, oh, um, we should target small systems and, and uh, have a, a sort of small memory footprint. But I mean, I've been building some, some stuff on, I mean, well, I can't tell you what they are. They're secret they're Ericsson things. But, but our notion of what's small is, is, is sort of changed. <laughs> you know, a small system can have a gigabyte of memory and, and uh, 
uh, a quad core in it now. Yeah. And and all these kind of oh, it needs to be small. They're gone, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know when I got to university, and you know I'm I'm somewhat younger than you, good bit in fact. I mean, I had a Mac with an eight megahertz processor and maybe four megabytes of RAM. Wow! And you know, <laughs> massive machine. Right, you know. It, I remember we had this SGI machine that was, you know, the size of a refrigerator and cost a quarter million dollars on campus. And you could do these cool molecular, you know, model a molecule, spin it around, and it was really awesome. And now you can do that on, you know, your phone. Well, actually, I, I gave a keynote in, in a, I can't remember what it was, some, some conference in London. And uh, just, I, I, I was trying to draw a, ret- a kind of retrospective over the, sort of last 30 years of what I've been doing. And, and some of the major changes actually changed not by software, but by the hardware scale changes. When when processors become a thousand times faster or you've got a thousand times more memory, different applications emerge and different things start happening. And it, it, it's kind of funny because uh, at one point I just sort of pulled out my phone and, and said, well, I had reckoned that, that my mobile phone, uh, which is Samsung sort of smartphone S, Two, I think it is, was I'd reckoned it was something like 10 million times more powerful than the machine I developed Airhang on. <laughs> and, uh, and I said it was about as powerful as the, the Cray One, which is a supercomputer at the time. And I was actually joking because I hadn't I hadn't uh, I'd done the measurements comparing it to the old Vax 11750 that we had. And it was several, you know, about 10 million times more powerful. And I was joking about the Cray one, and then somebody tweeted this and, and said, no, he's, he's, he's way out there. And then somebody else did a calculation and said, yes, it is actually right. That, that mobile phone is as powerful as a supercomputer in, in the 80s. <laughs> it is. That thing in your pocket is a supercomputer. Yeah. Or would have I been mean, a supercomputer I, in the 80s. As impressive as the size is, a big difference also is the energy or electricity needed to run the same levels of computation that was reduced immensely across different generations and whatnot. You can run the phone in a battery for hours, and back then you probably needed to have some kind of power generator just for the Cray one and whatever, but yeah. But, but you see, unfortunately, I mean, our ability to understand and control complexity in software hasn't increased at the same scale, right? So now, now we have... When this technology works, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, the fact we can hold a blog conversation like this and, and just talk to each other and do mobile communicating, all that stuff is, is amazing when it works, right? But, but a lot of this stuff is broken most of the time. And I spent, I, I was thinking, I kind of extrapolate. Most of my time as a programmer is spent fixing stuff that's broken but shouldn't be broken. I don't know if that's your experience. Whenever I try and do something, the yeah, stuff doesn't work. And, and it's I, my experience, and usually it's the code I wrote myself. But yeah. No, no, I mean, this is the co- that, yeah, that's the problem. The code I've written myself, that's the easy stuff, because I've written it. You can change it. It's easy. But It's easy for you. Well, no, it's easy for adults. Well, <laughs> well, well yeah, keep just, going. Well, you just rewrite it if you don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> that's quite easy. But, but the, the problem is other people's code that you have to integrate it with, and, and especially packages and things, and operating systems, and, and they, doesn't, they don't work. And... My my impression is I used to spend I, I must spend more than fifty percent of my time fixing essentially trivial like this I just want to do some web font stuff but it didn't load I spent like two or three hours on that today cursing it and and the percentage of my time that I spend on that is increasing 
by year. You know, so if I look back 20 years ago, I didn't spend 50 percent of my time fixing broken software. The software that was available was a lot, lot simpler and it was written by engineers and things and, and by a small group of people. And it didn't tend to have any errors in. So if we extrapolate that in you know, 20 years time, there's going to be an even more software. But 90 percent of it will be completely broken unless we find better ways of structuring it and gluing it together. Well, probably make a great Ph.D. dissertation for somebody. Hmm. Probably. No, I, think, I think, you know, I think the, the only way of doing it, I think, is, is you, you know, Systems should, in principle, be very small communicating agents. They should, you shouldn't have, an, an application shouldn't have more than about 20,000 lines of code in it total, and, and it should be a little black box, and it should talk through well-defined protocols, and there should be external agents that are checking the, you know, there should be languages to describe these protocols, and the things in between the agents should be checking that you're following the protocols all the time. I don't see any other way to glue things together. That sounds about right to me. I mean, okay, now you get, you get, you get 20 or 30 components linked together. And if you get errors in them, instead of, you know, you sort of pass the errors upstream or something and then it crashes in the wrong thing. And you don't know, you know, you don't know which one to blame because when, when you've got a load of things all working together, something crashes. Which, which, which one wasn't following the protocol? You know, we, we, we only look at, look at something like Wireshark or, or something. Um, here, here's a program. What's, uh, what's Wireshark for those who might not be familiar? Well, it's a, it's a thing you can, you can use it to analyze TCP streams and, and it's got a lot of built in intelligence. Um, right. You know, it, it used to be, wasn't always called Wireshark. It's called, what was it called before? It's called Wireshark. Remember, right. I think it now understands the Erlang distribution protocol yeah. too. But I mean, the, the thing I observe about that is, is that people, people only put their measurement points on one end of the system. So I mean, if, if you're if you're if you've got a client talking to a server, I've got my laptop here. I might run Wireshark on that, looking at what's happening at the client end, but I don't run it on the server end as well. I mean, it should be the same, but maybe it's not. Maybe maybe packets are fragmented. Maybe we drop packets, and when we don't collect in the measurements from the entire system and bring them back to one point and sort of logically piece them together and analyze them, it's very difficult to understand single well, thing distributed system when you're only looking at one of the things. Well, the next challenge is that when the system is large enough, it's impossible to just bring everything back to a single node. So yeah, then you have to yeah. find a different way to. Yeah. Hmm? When it's very large, but not, not when it's, yeah. you know, a few tens of nodes. No, no, sure. Yeah. The other thing which I find absolutely crazy is, in principle, I, I wrote, uh, there's a lovely program called Chandler, and I, I've written a, a sort of emulation of, or re-implementation of Chandler. Um, it's a, What's Chandler do? Oh, oh, it's fantastic. Actually, it's on my it's on my GitHub page. You can download it. It actually works. Uh, just, a, what, what, what's it for? I mean, I, I, oh, well, it's a to do list. Oh, okay. Now, all the to do lists are, are complete rubbish, if you ask me. Um, apart from Chandler, uh, it's a you know to do lists assume that you know all these silly to do lists. They assume that they assume that a, a task is done or not done. It's binary. Okay. And they, they assume that uh, once it's done, it's sort of done forever. It doesn't change its status back to being undone again. OK, and that that is crazy. So Chandler is based on on the triage. Do you, do you know what triage is in the hospital? Yeah. The triage system. Triage says that that uh, or in an emergency in an emergency room in a hospital or when there's been a, a major accident or something, what the. What the doctors do and the nurses do, they do a very, very quick assessment of, of things. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of 
now done, now later and done. Right. So they look at all the jobs they're going to do and they just classify them into these three states now, now, later or done. And so the Charter system color codes tasks and you, you have your task list there. Um, and they just look at it and you say, oh, I'm going to do that now. You just touch them and they turn red. And, and then it just resorts them and they come to the top of your list. And, and then and then you look at that and you say, well, which one of these I'm going to do? I'll do that. Uh, and then you look at some of them and you say, ah, oh, no, I don't need to do that now. I'll do it later. And it goes into the later list. And, and then um, and then when it's finally done, you can sort of click on it, put it into the done list. But it, China also makes the assumption that, that, that even when it's done, it may change its status back to do it now or something like that. So it tracks all of this and it has it has things uh, for dates and things. So, so things automatically pop in. So it actually it kind of models how I think, you know, I, I never think of jobs as sort of being done. When's the job done? You know, you, you go to your boss and say, oh, we finished it now. And the next moment he rushes in and says, you know, that stuff we finished last month, we've got to do it again. You know, there's a bug. And suddenly it's now, you know, that's not a to do list, is it? Yeah, I don't know what that is. It's. Chaos. It doesn't work like that. It's not how we think. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're really good at, humans are really good at building logical systems to model illogical life. Mm. Are there any features you'd like to see added to Erlang that you think would actually would be a good idea that are not there now? Yeah, loads. <laughs> <laughs> Such as? I, I kind of worry about th- things that don't have names. You, you can't reason about them. So, so um, there's, there's no notion of a process. Uh, we don't know what a process is. We can't name a process. You sort of name it indirectly by by saying how you create it. You know, if you spawn this module with these arguments, you, you've created a process. But that's an indirect way of naming it. It's not a direct. You can't talk about the process called Fred. You know, there's not a Fred process. So we, we don't have process declarations. But I'd like to. Uh, and you can't. You can't sort of. I I would like to see. We have. Okay. I mean, again, it's a historical accent. We have. We have two versions of modules, okay, with the same name. The module with the same name can have two versions, and you have to purge the other one when you know about that stuff. Mm. The reason for that was, was when we built Erlang, we had limited memory, uh, very limited memory, we were running on machines with half a megabyte or so, or a megabyte of memory. Um, nowadays, I would like to have indefinite number of modules, uh, the same version of garbage collect, the old ones. Uh, I would also like to be able to, I, I'd like to load a module in, um, there's a there's a, it's a, it's a little exercise you can a thought exercise you can do for yourself. You know we've got registered processes and processes, okay, right. and they have different properties. So the, the 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 property of a process, a PID, is it's kind of safe because if you don't know the PID, you can't send a message to it. So nobody knows about it. It's, it's private. You can you know it's in in that sense it's safe. But it's not very convenient. It's not convenient to use because you have to pass the Peered around as an argument before you can use it. And then you've got registered processes. You give it a name and then it immediately flips its properties. It, it becomes convenient to use. Anybody can send a message to it because it's got a global name, but it's not safe because anybody can send a message to it. Right. Now, if you look at, if you look at modules, they're like registered processes. Anybody can call a module because they know the name. Right. So, so there's not something that's, uh, that there should be, in the sense you say spawn and it produces a PID. Actually, I think load module should produce a variable called a mod, which you can do apply to, but nobody else can use it. And if you do register mod against a name, then it becomes like a registered, it's a registered module. And now anybody can call it. 
It okay. could be a bit equivalent to having a bunch of or a group of processes and defining the environment they operate in. Yeah. Because right now the environment for the virtual machine is shared across all the processes right. when it comes and, to and modules. And then what I would like to do is, is sort of I, I would like this to list and from list to be universal. So you can't there's certain things you can turn into lists. And then you can manipulate them as lists and then you can turn them back into you can do list to tuple. Sorry, you can do tuple to list. And then when it's in a list you can tiddle around with it and turn it back into a tuple. And you can do atom to list and list to apple. But you can't you can't do fun to list. Right. And then mess around with the bits and then do list to fun to get it back again. And you can't do module to list. I mean, module to list should actually return a list of funds. OK. And then you mess around with them and, and, and then you do list to module again, a list of funds to module. And it turns it back into a module. So I'd really like to make everything higher order in that sense that there's no. And I, and I, and I see you can have module to module to funds. Oh, sorry, module to list would produce a list of funds. Okay. And then you have fun to list. Now, a fun is composed of, well, I call them arrows. The concept of an arrow doesn't exist in LM, but, but, but I call them arrows because a, a fun's a, a fun's basically a list of arrows. You know, it's, it's A, arrow B, semicolon, C, arrow D. So you really want fun to arrows, which returns a list of arrows. And then you could sort of reorder them and take them out and add debugging things and put them back together again. So I'd, li- I'd like to compose and decompose things. And then I'd like sort of introspection that, you know, you can ask about the system, you can ask about the modules. And, and uh, So, in fact, there's a lot of things I, w- I would like to do. Well, I, is there any possibility that any of these could happen? They, uh, they happen slowly now. That, that's the problem. Um, I think you would probably need a new version of the Erlang language to be able yeah. to do it. I mean, I, at a conference, I, 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 did some, I did something called Erlang 2, which I, I thought it was, it yeah. just gets, you see, it is, you know, for something like it's very frustrating, you know, to, to, to sort of want to change the language now because something that I could change, you know, without asking anybody <laughs> and took a day, right. you know, now is a, now is a, is a, is a really long process. But well, I mean, I, that reflects I, the maturity of things. So it's, I mean, it must happen to all languages. Well, I, mean, I wonder if it takes to change Java. How, how long did it take to add a comma to Java? <laughs> a hundred years or something. Yeah, well, I wonder if you could use kind of the process they're using for Elixir, where they're, you know, compiling it to run on the Erlang runtime system, but they, you know, they can experiment and yes, try things. Yes, yes. That's what Erlang 2 was doing. Yeah, Erlang 2 just, Erlang 2 is a sort of completely different, or in, in certain areas, a different syntax. And, yeah, and just compiles, I, it just compiles down to Erlang 1, if you like. If we call well, Erlang Erlang 1, it compiles to Erlang 1. What I would love to see is, although actually there's a, the Orlando module can do this. The Orlando, it's a partial transform where you can have a um, basically partial partial function application. Mm. So you can take a two parameter function, give it you know one of the parameters, and return a a one for a fun one, so that you can um, then use it and pass it around as a higher order function. Uh, so you can actually do that. You just need to stick a compiler directive in the top mm. of your file. And, 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 then, and I've, I've actually changed my mind about some things. I mean, I I, I used to be rather um, skeptical about backwards compatibility, if you like, and, and used to argue, no, no, take the latest version and change your software. And, and um, then, because we were in a, an industrial background, you know, the the, um, the project managers and things they're really scared of, of non backwards compatible changes to the language. So, you know. You, you didn't do them. And, and I go, well, why? Why? Why can't you just use the new system? And they say, well, it's testing. You know, we, we, we can't actually just 
when we change the code, we need to book a test facility and it takes three weeks before we get to the thing. And then we've got to ship all this equipment in and we need all this stuff and it's really difficult. And, and so it's in the sort of big industry sort of DNA that everything's got to be backwards compatible and all version compatible and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was always against it. And then and more recently, I've been I've been writing some Python and, and um I very, very quickly get into, I've got like six, to, oh no, I don't know, Python 2.5, 2.6, 2.7, 3.0 on my machine, and yep. programs that work in one don't work on the other, and old code doesn't work, and this, and the libraries are all in there, are three different package managing systems, and my goodness, it's a mess. No, it's, we didn't, you know, we've managed to keep out of that so far, and, and uh, I just hope uh, that. I have version nightmare. Yeah. nightmare. I want to. I want to get. Out. I don't want to get into version nightmare because everybody else has got into version nightmare. I, as a user, as somebody who's using the last, which I appreciate that, because um, I mean the browser is version nightmare already for those people for when you're working on the front end, and then you know Rails seems to and Node just both seem to enjoy version nightmare <laughs> as well. Yeah, Node is Node is actually getting a little more stable, but Rails continues to pound me. You know, it's the uh, it's something I described it once as just Rails, but as a contractor, they knew is they practice what they call RDD, resume-driven development. They pick technology based on what would look cool on their resume. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do conference-based development. Yeah, I do that sometimes too. <laughs> you, you you just give I I deliberately I I give myself titles for stuff I know nothing about, you know, then I implement it all. <laughs> you know, Robert did that for Lua. You know why Lua got developed in, in Erlang? Because Robert, Robert was going Robert yeah. to give a talk on domains, writing domain-specific languages in, in, uh, in Erlang. And uh, I, remember him, I remember him talking to me and he said, yeah, he said, I'm, I'm giving a talk on implementing domain-specific languages in Erlang. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, oh, I don't know anything about it. He said, I better implement it. Better implement the domain. <laughs> I, I know what I'll do. I'll implement Lua. You know? <laughs> so he implemented Lua. Uh, so Lua was not originally written in Erlang, was it? It was originally written in. C. Oh, it's written in C. Yes. I mean, it's. No, it's, ju- it's just some kind of an interpreter that Robert Verding wrote for Lua in Erlang, so that you yeah. can use it inside. He also has a similar one for Prolog in Erlang, coming yeah. full cir- coming full circle, because Erlang was originally in Prolog. Yeah, and uh, this kind of leads me to uh, a question for you, Joe. I mean, Erlang is heavily influenced by Prolog because that's what the language with? you use to implement in the first place. Yes. If you had to re-implement Erlang from scratch today, would you still pick Prolog to do it as the first route about no, it? I, or would you go for a different language and then probably oh, yeah, no, inherit a bunch I of properties from there? I would implement it in Erlang, of course. Different <laughs> 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 scratch. <laughs> But if I didn't have Erlang, yeah, privacy is all the way down. Prolog again, and still pretty good for that kind of thing. I I might do it in Haskell. Mm -hmm. I mean, Haskell Haskell seems pretty good for writing domain-specific languages in. You're going to get for that kind of thing. The the type system is going to help you a lot. And I certainly wouldn't use uh, sort of Java thing. Haskell seems like the place where a lot of just really interesting ideas start Mm. and migrate to other places. And from what I understand, they consider that kind of a feature. That yeah, they, they they had this idea about voiding success at all costs because <laughs> it was just like, and no, it, that was one of the basic ideas that was just 
you don't get success, you implement everything you, you want and you don't have to have backwards compatibility and can just try ideas and keep the one that you like and whatnot uh, until it, it ends up catching on later. But yeah. And Simon Payton Jen seems to view it as a vehicle for experimenting with type systems. <laughs> you know, there are worse ideas. Um, I don't know. It appeals to the mathematicians and, and, and things. And, and I think that they're not, they're more interested in the beauty of it. And they, oh, it's very beautiful. Not, not interested in going out and earning money and things. <laughs> it's not interesting to them. You know, Erlang, one of the reasons Erlang appealed to me is it just seemed like if you guys created it with, the, you know, the express purpose of shipping stuff. You know. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I mean the, 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 the thing that's, um, I wasn't really so aware of it. It's something kind of low profile, but there was a talk at, I think, I can't remember, two user conferences ago on, on this Ericsson MME. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on the web. If you search for MME, you'll find it. Now, the MME, very sexy title, is the thing in the backbone of the mobile t- telephony net that makes all the mobile data work, right? And that's written in Erlang. Now, that is the central component in the mobile networks for all the smartphones. So so smartphones wouldn't be able to do any data. They wouldn't be able to connect up to the networks at all uh, without this MME thing. And that's all implemented in Erlang. And that is currently controlling... Well, Ericsson has got the biggest market share in the world for mobile base stations. So we do 40% of the total world market for 3G and wideband CDMA. And we are 60% of the world market for, for LTE and 4G. Okay. So that gives us a market share of about 50% of the world market. Now, mobile communications has surpassed landline and fiber and stuff like that for, for internet. Okay. Did it about 18 months ago. And that means that Erlang is controlling 50% of all the smartphones, uh, worldwide. Is it still in used intensively in the Ericsson and stuff or? Yeah. Well, still yeah, still using it. I, I, I know it was used for testing, but I didn't know it was still used in in production. In production, in, yeah, in the products, and it's absolutely central. And we sell this box called the MME, something like that. And one box control. I mean, they are so powerful. It's a it's a, a single rack thing, and then it's duplicated. And, and I think it's like 18 million users per box or something. And how much and does one of those boxes cost approximately? Uh, I don't know. They're, they're expensive. It's, pro- it's probably related to how much you can pay at that kind of scale. Yeah, Do you want uh, to install one? What's yeah. how well, much I mean, can you don't, afford? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you just don't buy this and nothing else. You buy that together with your mobile. You know. I mean, in fact, it's a very small percentage of the system because because you sell a hundred thousand base stations and one of these things because they're monsters. But this one thing has to work. This is one totally critical component. That's the thing that works all the handovers and, and absolutely all the traffic set up, all the signaling goes through it. And it's all done in LA. That bit. So in other words, when I'm, dr- when I'm using ways to avoid traffic on the way home. If, if you're going through an Ericsson base station, uh, yeah, then it's Erlang's. I have no yeah. idea what the, what. Yeah, well, no, I, I don't know who, I mean, in, in Sweden, the chance would be 100%. I don't think there are any non-Ericsson equipment. In, and, and then in different countries, we have different market penetrations. Yeah, okay. there's no idea. So I don't know. But worldwide, it's probably about 50%. Now, when I, when I, so it's kind of laughable for our guys. We see WhatsApp is saying, we're switching 10, million, 10 billion messages a day and claiming that that's the biggest message passing thing in the world. And that's thanks to Erlang. And, you know, we're bigger than Twitter, and Twitter said, well, we're bigger than Google. And then, then the guys in our labs are thinking, we're bigger than WhatsApp, because for their 10 billion messages, we have to send about 
10 messages for every one of their one messages. And it's for the entire worldwide networks. And that's all done in Allo. So we're at a scale that is maybe, I can't even guess, 100 times what WhatsApp's at. <laughs> Nobody knows about this. It's all done in our language. Really? The, odd company, the odd company who's discovered this stuff then goes runs off and makes an application and, <laughs> and goes, oh, that's amazing, it works. And we're all, all the engineers at Ericsson are going like, well, we knew that. <laughs> you guys need some, you know, one of the reasons I created this podcast is because I feel like we just need to sort of get the word out more that you guys created this amazing technology and it's, it works. It's useful. Yeah, it does work. It the, the, the problems that us web engineers, I work for a, a internet startup in Tel Aviv, you know, that we're solving now in 2013, you guys were working on in 1987. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you probably figured most of them out. We were working on the same problems, you know. How do you, how do you keep sort of millions of connections alive and what happens? You know, how, how do you, how do you get the fault recovery down to so, so the whole with, so you lose Individual transactions, but not the whole system. You know, how do, how do you build that? How do you make it scalable? How do you make it fault tolerant? So yeah, and and well, no, it's much earlier than five, as you say, because what we did then was based on a long tradition. You see, when I joined the lab at eighty-five, uh, and we were doing Erlang, uh, I was talking to the engineers who had built the AXE and the Plex system, and that's the stuff that came before that, and that that had a like a ten-year tradition. So all the all the kind of replication and failover things that 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 actually comes from the AX the AXE ten now that comes from a design from 1974 which was the first 1974 was when the first computer controlled uh, exchanges came in okay I was wondering about that so do any of the other telecom companies do you know do they use Erlang for their switches not the time not not the big ones but I, I know I know there are a lot of, of little smaller um, well, sorry, what do you mean by telecom companies? There's telecom equipment providers. Yeah, yeah you know. Central switches. That's like Huawei and, and Ericsson, and I think Ericsson's the only one. Motorola had a bit of airline, I think, or did experiments. I don't think they ever got into to products. There was... There any- uh, yeah, who released uh, Disco framework was uh, telecom oh, yeah, companies, no I Nokia, yeah. Yeah, for their... For their I think it's doing all their maps in their their, 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 their small phones. Yeah. Simon, you were yep. saying? Well, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, I, I keep having the same conversations over and over with people who've never heard of Erlang. <laughs> and, you know, I can I can always tell the telecom story and people get it because they know what phone company reliability is supposed to mean. <laughs> but I also wonder if there's a way to tell a bigger story about, you know, other places that Erlang is used. I, I, some of this comes up in the books. I've seen bits and pieces mm. of it online, but I almost feel like there's a much bigger opportunity here than we've actually mm. in so far. It's, uh, I mean, the funny I thing mean, is, it, it, it's like if you, there, there, were, there were certain stuff that were kind of drummed into my head when, when I first went there, and there, there was this sort of mantra. Everybody used to say, four minutes a year, <laughs> downtime, right? That's it. Because the AXE 10, when it was sold, was contractually, we, we paid penalty clauses if the bloody stuff was down for, for more than four minutes a year. You know, $10,000 or something for the first minute. You know, so, so everything, everything was, um, everything was after this four minutes a year. And it was just like, well, you know, stuff shouldn't crash. So I'm kind of appalled, you know, I use internet and my, 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 uh, service provider just sort of, 
their DNS just doesn't work for three or four hours at a time. <laughs> I have to use a different DNS. And, you know, what are these guys playing at? We, we were down at four minutes a year in 1980. You know, we, we could do milliseconds per year now. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, we've got the technology to do it. And then there's this whole thing like, like well, there's always been the, the telecoms industry and the, the computer industry, but like, well, you know, they've built internet. But wait a moment, we have worldwide telecoms telecommunications networks around the whole bloody planet years before the internet existed. <laughs> We've been doing it a lot longer, but we haven't had this kind of, it hasn't been overhyped and it's been sort of solid engineering in the Mac. Yeah, and it's I, one of the reasons, like I said, I founded this podcast is because I just wanted to get this story out to people, you know, who maybe will stumble upon us in the iTunes store or something. Mm. And you know, because it is interesting technology. And part of the problem you keep having in general is that, is that Erlang is a tool. I mean, it's not a solution, it's a tool. And if you don't have the people who know how to build a solution with the tool, you're still left with a good tool and a crappy solution at the end. And this is something that, no matter how good Erlang will be, I say web engineers because you brought that a while ago, but I don't have anything specific against web engineer or whatever. But if web engineers are currently not able to make telephony scale systems, it's not because you give them Erlang that they'll be able to in general. They might be more productive if they know how to do it, but there is knowledge that's required to do that. The same way that someone who's always doing uh, desktop application goes into the web and then you get this new application out there that's full of security holes because there's just not enough knowledge about the reality of that kind of application mm. to make it work. And I'm working on some on medium to large size server applications, but if you send me into embedded software, I'm going to make something that probably kills someone because I just don't know how to do it right at this point. I think. And I think the, no, yeah. I, I think one one of the problems is that the 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 companies that do the applications, they, they become quickly worth a lot of money if, if they're good applications, right? So we've probably got, we've certainly got one company, uh, you know, this uh, Klarna company in Sweden. Yep. Yeah, they uh, got an office here in Tel Aviv, too. Yeah. Are they there as well? Uh, yeah, but the Tel Aviv office only does Ruby. Uh, yeah, I ran oh, okay. them at a conference a while back. But, I mean, the Klarna people, they're, they're up at 800 people uh, now. I think it's about 800 people. They're probably... They're, the first, they're, they're worth a billion dollars. Um, they're five years old, and, and the key technology is Erlang. And the, you know, they, 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 they employed all the, the Klaus Wikström, who um, was one of the gang of four who did Erlang and did Minesia and put distribution into Erlang. He, he wrote the first, uh, their first banking system for them. You know, and, and, and they, they had this rapid growth. They, they bankrupted. Uh, one company that was trying to do the same thing, they were trying to do it in Java just by getting to the marketplace for them, and they they came out with a product for one of the major banks who was trying to do the same thing. They're worth a billion dollars. Um, say WhatsApp is, I don't know to what extent its success is due to Erlang, but I mean the Erlang's their, their kind of core switching technology. It was rumored they were, you know, negotiating to be bought up by by Google for you know a billion dollars or something. We we the company I started that was. That was sold, bought up $150 million. And I don't know what Basho is worth, but if it were to be sold. And the trouble is, it's, that's where it's kind of, you, you see a spectacular interest. But the OTP group that produces all that stuff, right, you would think, well, that, surely that must be worth a billion dollars or something. Well, no, it's not, you see. <laughs> it's hardly valued because they don't value the technology, they, but they value the application that comes out, you see. And I know here in, here in Tel Aviv, Erlang is like 
really weird. Um, <laughs> you know, there's probably about half a dozen of us total here, and we're holding uh, DevCon Tel Aviv, which is coming up right after EOC, is going to have a couple talks on Erlang, and then we're actually putting together Erlang Factory Light Tel Aviv. Why is uh, it weird? I find that very funny. <laughs> um, it's just that, you know, with the exception of a couple companies, you know, in Tel Aviv, it's, you know, go to Tel Aviv, which has got a bazillion high-tech firms. I mean, mm. you'd be hard-pressed to name a high-tech firm that doesn't have a, a, a development center here. So what are they doing? They're all Haskell? Oh, no. It's um, all Java, C-sharp, PHP, a bit of Ruby. Erlang is kind of background noise. It's pretty much everywhere in every area, but there's not a lot of it. It's just always behind because you do conference and there are people using it for embedded software. There's people using it for in the automotive industry. You've got people using it for telecoms or servers or whatever. Uh, but it's never the majority in any kind of application. I think at one stage it was, it was, I got the feeling it was spreading like an operating system spreads, not like a programming language spreads. It's sort of, you know, at one stage it was actually, it's, I think it's gone. Now it's gone now. But it, Mozilla or somebody put it in for for doing bookmarks or, or sort of user yeah, data. Or was, yeah. and, it, and it appeared. Yeah. It appeared in Ubuntu briefly. Yeah, they were they were using it to sync contacts, and that was Ubuntu. Yeah. Ubuntu and, one. And, and suddenly, suddenly there it was. You know, on ten million machines. You know, sort of ticking away. If you did a PS minus something pipe, but hey, there's a beam there. You do yeah. kill all beam, and suddenly something in Ubuntu stopped working. <laughs> but when did they put that in? We didn't even know. Right? No, I mean it, it's, certainly, it's spreading into a lot of products in, by that mechanism. I mean, it's certainly in use here. I mean, I know of companies that are using eJabberD or Ryak or whatever for for you know this or that. And then it's a lot of, but not necessarily they're not necessarily doing their own development in early. But then I meet a lot. I don't know. At the Allen conferences, I, I mean, the last user one in, in Stockholm, some bloke came up to me from a gaming company and said, oh, it's great. We just we're doing this server for something. We got we managed to get three million connections on it. And he was he was overjoyed. You know, oh, it's fantastic. Fantastic. You know, it's great. And I said, who, who are you from? And he said, oh, somebody he said, well, you know, you're going to tell everybody. about it. No, 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 no. Well, why not? Well, we're telling all our competitors we use Jigsaw. Right. <laughs> What's Jigsaw? I've never heard of it. It's a, it's a Java. It's a Java HTTP server. It's a trade secret to be using Erlang for them. Yeah, but the point is, you see, if if you have a level playing field, if Java's just as good, you know, if there's no commercial advantage from using Ruby on Rails or Java or anything else, you might as well go to the conferences and swap battle stories and swap tips. If you've actually found something that's a bloody sight better, you're not going to tell anybody, right? Are you? No, I'm. You know, I am. And that, that's what I think is happening. It's funny. I used to work for. A well, not not everybody's like that. Some will, some will tell. I used to work for a games company here in, here in Israel, and our main servers were all written in Java. And when we did an upgrade, which was regular and painful, you know, our servers were off for for you know multiple hours. And these are the servers that you know were the company basically. You know, these are the the games that people played that made the company money were offline. But I mean, you've got things like the op. I mean, read the op code, ops code blog, and, and the stuff that Dave Smith, I think it is, has been publishing, and and their their Chef Eleven, which they've sold into Facebook. I mean, here's Erlang controlling every single bloody or will be controlling all the servers in Facebook, and and they're saying on their blog, well, from one machine we can control a hundred thousand machines. Well, I believe that. And then they're saying, well, it was a rewrite from Ruby, you know, and the, the memory was like this and we could control so many machines in the Ruby server and now we've changed it to Erlang and, and just look at the figures. I would have thought that the, the serious Ruby people were just like 
go, oh, my God, gulp, I better look at this stuff. But they don't, you know. Well, some of them must, but... Some the of them do. Seem, yeah, well, some of them probably do, yeah. But, yeah, it's... um. I mean, good, the, the the figures that Gennaris was, was talking about in, in San Francisco, I don't know if they come out on video yet. I must blog them when they came out, but he was... They were out of this world, you know. He was replacing an entire data center with a rack and <laughs> stuff. Oh, that's got to be some nice all around. Yeah, I um, mean, it was amazing. It was... So we should probably wrap this up. We've been going on for about an hour now. Yep. So let's move on to the picks. Uh, Simon, you have any good picks? Picks? Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. I thought yeah. I put an email. So we basically try to, you know, at the end, throw out a couple of links to things we find interesting. Oh, I see. Picks. I thought we meant, like, pictures. Oh, oh picks. As in, you know, can be Erlang related, can be not. Oh, okay. Yes. Just include a link if you can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got one that isn't directly related to Erlang, but it it got me thinking. Um, it was a quote about you know how how would it feel to comment on a Basecamp that was 50 years old or a GitHub repository that was 100 years old? Erlang is actually you know reasonably old, and that confuses people. But you know that kind of stability both in the short term that Erlang provides and in the long run of just this kind of continuously updatable system is is amazing stuff. And uh, I think there's a, a long-term future story there. Bird? Um No, I actually don't have one this week. Uh, again, last week I could not even be there because hmm. too busy. So I haven't had the time to find anything for this week. Uh, Joe, do you got anything interesting to share? I don't know. I haven't actually been looking for anything. So <laughs> I, I haven't, actually... Haven't been on my mind. I mean, you, I got mail from you yesterday or something. How would you like to do it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have something. It's a very old trick from something from a mailing list in 1994, but I think not a lot of people really know it. It's about the spiral rules to reading type declarations in C and how you can parse them. So when you got a <laughs> oh, char star, char star oh, and everything. Okay. Oh, there's some funny word. Bob's neo-graphic, or that means reading from the right to left and left to right alternatively. Yeah, that, that one is it's called the clockwise spiral rule. And yeah. it's really about you get a type signature in C, or mm. even C++, and how do you read it? And it's a spiral from the inside out to be able to read it as a sentence and understand the types really, really quick. And I guess most C ex- people who are really, really experienced with C don't really need that, but I found it very, very useful I, uh, when you're using it on and off and whatnot. I wrote, I was writing a C compiler in Erlang a couple of years ago, and, and I had to understand the type system there, and I, I sort of understood this, and, and I thought, um, I wonder how many C programmers, you know, if you've got a, a sort of int star or a brackets int star or something, you know, is that, is that an array of pointers to integers or a pointer to an array of integers? You know, you know the typical sort of thing. And I sort of started asking C programmers. About 50% of them got it wrong. <laughs> I... I, I... And, and, and I, and I, I started reading up on this, and, and, and in fact, the reason the reason C programmers don't make mistakes is because the usage of, of, of uh, a type declaration and the declaration itself are isomorphic. You see, you just when you use the type, or when you manipulate an instance of the variable, or whatever it is, you you more or less copy the, the the way you got to it from the type declaration. So they're the same. <laughs> so you don't actually know a lot of the time. You don't need to know what it is. It just sort of gets it right for you. Just need the same pattern. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it works. So I actually have two. Uh, one's Erlang related. Uh, I've been using the Erlando library, which is from the eJabberD folks. It's um, basically a monad library ripping off 
a lot of the good ideas from Haskell. Orlando, um, I thought that was RabbitMQ. Sorry, yeah, did I see Jeopardy? It's the it's RabbitMQ, you're right. And that was one. And Although apparently they don't use it anymore. It apparently got taken out, but I find it very useful. And the other one was a video that uh, Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, posted. It must be with programming at all. But it's just a really cool video of somebody doing something cool with a camera, a speaker, and a hose. Um, perfectly family said, by the way. Nothing... <laughs> <laughs> that sounded really weird but no it's just um, this guy basically used the strobing of a camera and a speaker to do a really cool it's about two minutes long video with um, a hose spinning and basically causing patterns to appear that you know just due to the fact that the frequency of the speaker and the frequency at which the camera's sampling are syncing up so it was pretty cool um, and of course if you haven't seen it the uh, commander Chris Hadfield from the International Space Station's version yeah, oh, of like, David Bowie's Space Oddity was just yeah, mind-blowing. That's really good. I enjoyed that. I think the entire world did. It was literally out of this world. It, yeah. Not a pun there. It was literally true. So Yeah. Oh, it's very good. All right. Well, next week we will be, Justin will be back and we'll be discussing more Erlang stuff. I think tentatively. And then the Zotonic guys are going to be joining us the week after that. So that should be exciting. Uh, the Satonic package. So, Joe, thanks so much for coming at the last minute. Thanks. Yeah. It was fun. Look forward to actually meeting you in person at EUC. Yeah.